It's a joy for me to be back at this institution. I'm a huge fan of what you all do here, and I've seen the positive and good effect of uh, this institution throughout the country and the world, uh, bumping into PhD grads uh, in Europe, uh, at Oxford, at the Angelicum in Rome, uh, at law school at Notre Dame and elsewhere. So uh, I'm a big fan. Blessings on all you do. And I'm delighted to be able to talk about one of my obsessions, uh, which is uh, the mystery of love as Aquinas has thought about it. I've given the following title to these reflections, The Double Flame, Thomas Aquinas on the Mystery of Love. Towards the end of his life, the Nobel Prize winning poet Octavio Paz wrote a book which is really an extended essay on one of his life's obsessions as well, the mystery of love. Already as an adolescent, Paz sang, uh, sang of love in his early poems. And throughout his life, he investigated its joys and sorrows, twists and turns. As a seasoned diplomat in the service of his country, uh, his native Mexico, he traveled the world and learned the literature and customs of peoples uh, throughout the world, east and west. This led Paz to conclude that the fire of love was really a double flame, uh, the red flame of eroticism, or what he'll say further in the book, eros, and the tremulous blue flame of love properly so-called. And I've given you in the handouts different quotations. Um, it's, I think it's too annoying to simply always uh, appeal to the alphabet there of where they are, but I think you'll be able to figure out where I am as you go down the, the sheet. Um, so yes, the double flame, the red flame of Eros and the tremulous blue flame of love properly so called. The red flame of Eros is a passionate desire that can either degrade or ennoble. This burning flame is often experienced, Paz explains, as a wound or a sickness as something we undergo, often against our will, like the result of a magic potion or a flaming arrow uh, or of a snare we, that we fall into. We speak of falling in love. Love properly so-called, however, entails something further. The blue flame depends on the red but goes beyond it. Love properly so-called entails what Paz describes as the other great mystery of love choice. Paz thus concludes that, quote, love is fall and flight, choice and submission, or more specifically, love is involuntary attraction toward a person and the voluntary acceptance of that attraction. It is both a bewitchment and a free decision. Although Paz's reflections on love are ultimately inadequate, and often, alas, contradictory, he does well express one perennial feature of love's mystery. Love is indeed a double flame. It entails both desire and something more, something that engages the free choice of the will. Paz never adequately articulates this voluntary feature of love's blue flame, although he rightly notes that it entails communion of life and compassion. 
It is here that the lasting importance of the Neapolitan poet whom we celebrate today, the man from Rocca becomes apparent. Too often we forget that Thomas was a poet, indeed a very great poet, uh, as the Adoro Te Devote and the hymns for the feast of Corpus Christi reveal. Was Thomas Aquinas, like Octavio Paz, obsessed with the mystery of love from his earliest adolescence? There is no way for us to know. We do know, however, that he too will portray love as a double flame that entails both desire and a free choice of the will. Moreover, with the aid of Aristotle, he will offer a fuller portrayal of love's blue flame and a more adequate account of its relationship to the red flame of desire. The importance of Aquinas' achievement becomes apparent when we read Aquinas' theology of love in relation to St. Augustine's account of charity. Often Aquinas uses Aristotle for Augustinian ends to state insights from Augustine better than Augustine himself with the aid of Aristotle. So in On Christian Doctrine, Augustine famously defines charity by first distinguishing between enjoyment and use. Some things, Augustine explains, are to be enjoyed, others to be used, and others are to be enjoyed and used. Augustine further affirms that we should only enjoy God while we should use all other things. Although Augustine was tempted to include our neighbors and ourselves among those whom we should use, he does say that at the beginning of the work, he ultimately settles on the more satisfying view that we should enjoy one another in God. From this, Augustine will define charity as follows. I call charity the spirit's motion toward enjoying God for himself and enjoying oneself and one's neighbor for God. By defining charity as a movement toward the enjoyment of God, Augustine is portraying charity as a type of desire. It is desire for a thing, because it is desire for a thing, that moves us toward enjoying that thing. Thus, he will elsewhere describe the acts of faith, hope, and charity. In that famous letter 130 to uh, Proba, uh, he will describe the acts of faith, hope, and charity as believing, hoping, and you might expect loving, but he says believing, hoping, and desiring. Hoc est credentem, sperantem, desiderantem. Augustine summarizes this when he affirms that the whole life of a good Christian is a holy desire, sanctum desiderium. From the perspective of love's double flame, Augustine appears to affirm that charity, the love of God, belongs entirely to the red flame of passion's desire. But the Augustinian portrayal of charity is more profound and complicated than this because of Augustine's Neoplatonic understanding of desire. For Plotinus and the Neoplatonists, desire for the good is an ecstatic desire 
that leads the lover out of himself toward a self-forgetful union with and a self-forgetful service of the beloved. Indeed, Augustine defines enjoyment as the act of clinging to something with love for its own sake, propter se ipsum. Enjoyment in Augustine's mind, therefore, is an activity that is the service of the beloved. Augustine's definition of enjoyment becomes even more striking when we realize that the verb translated here as clinging, inherere, signifies literally to adhere to or even often to dwell with. To enjoy, for Augustine therefore, is to dwell with another for the other's own sake. Charity's desire thus becomes a desire to be united with the beloved in his service. In terms of love's fire, Augustine does not reduce charity to the red flame of desire, but portrays the flame of desire as at the service of the blue flame of love's freely chosen voluntary action. Unfortunately, however, if you have not been trained in the works of Plato, and his Neoplatonic disciples, this ecstatic aspect of charity's desire may well be lost on you. You may conclude that Augustine is instead presenting charity's act as a desire for a self-regarding and self-fulfilling enjoyment. This is clearly how Anders Nygren interprets him. Augustine would thus be akin, uh, a love of God, therefore, uh, in this vision, God would thus be akin to a meal uh, that you desire uh, to enjoy. With the phrase, for his own sake, signifying simply that God is not the means to some greater meal, but is himself the ultimate great banquet and final object that you desire to enjoy. Augustine seems to have become aware of this danger, uh, the danger of how he would be interpreted by those who had not studied Plato. For in his commentary on the first letter of John, something that he did reading out, uh, inviting the faithful to come and hear him give these uh, reflections. So this is the common people of Hippo who are hearing him give these talks. He says, he cautions that we should not love others the way we love a meal. And I've given you the, the quotation. We should not love men the way we hear gluttons say, I love thrushes. Now, parenthesis. Uh, Horace has a, a letter where he, he explains, I can understand how a person can use all of his life savings on uh, these wonderful birds. So uh, the Romans were obsessed with eating Thrushes, which is a tiny bird. It, uh, in the most often around here, I guess, is a, is a, a tohi, California tohi. That's a thrush. There's not a lot of meat on a thrush. But the, the Romans loved it and uh, apparently spent a lot of their time um, and resources on eating them. So anyway, we should not love men the way we hear gluttons say, I love thrushes. That is, uh, what is it you want for them? only to kill and eat them. He says he loves, but his love for the birds leads to their disappearance. His love amounts to this, destruction. Everything we love as a meal 
we thus love in order that it be consumed and we renewed. Augustine counters this destructive desire by now portraying authentic love as a type of friendship. Quote, there is a certain friendship of benevolence, amicitia benevolentiae, which leads us sometimes to render service to those whom we love. The focus here is not so much on desire as on goodwill that passes into visible action. Augustine explains, even when there is nothing you can do for your beloved, like God, God is that father at Father's Day. You know, what can you get a father who has everything? So, I mean, what can you do for God? So even when you can't do anything for God, the goodwill itself suffices. Augustine th has thus identified a neglected feature of love's blue flame that someone like Octavio Paz has never been able to articulate, uh, although his poems are much better than his philosophy. So what does Augustine add to our understanding? The will's act is a freely chosen benevolence, willing good for the other. When we love, we wish our beloved well. But Augustine never integrated these essentially Aristotelian insights into his Neoplatonic theology of charity, of charity as desire. He does not mention them in his retraction, nor attempt to modify the final version of On Christian Doctrine, which he, he wrote beginning of, the first parts of, earlier, and then 20 years later he writes the last part. He didn't revise the earlier parts. The result will be a scholastic as well as a monastic theology of charity that will overemphasize the red flame of desire to the detriment of the blue flame of benevolence. It is here that Thomas Aquinas emerges as a true master of the Christian life and as a veritable apostle of charity's blue flame. With the aid of Aristotle's insights into the love proper to friendship, St. Thomas will integrate charity's desire into charity's deeper and more glorious act, the act of affirming, promoting, and celebrating the beloved. To understand St. Thomas's achievement, we must first avoid the temptation to see Thomas' distinction between love in the passions and love in the will as corresponding to the distinction between the two flames. Although emotional love primarily pertains to the red flame of desire, in humans, the passions, including emotional love, participate somewhat in our freedom. Emotional love participates in the blue flame. More importantly, Thomas agrees with Augustine that the will has its own desires and joys. For St. Thomas, the double flame is a property of all created love, emotional and spiritual, at least in this life. We are strange and glorious amphibians created to breathe the air of the spiritual by living in the waters of the material. We live the spiritual powers of intellect and will in and through the, body, the bodily powers of the senses and the emotions. 
Spiritual love in us is intimately connected to emotional love, and ideally our emotions support our spiritual loves, but not always. For St. Thomas, love is an analogous term that we apply both to a principle of action and to the actions that flow from this principle. Thus, in relation to wine, I can employ the word love to express both my enjoyment of the wine that I am currently drinking, oh, I love this wine, or to express my desire for a glass of wine, oh, I would, I would really love a glass of wine, or more properly, when I see a waiter pass by with a bottle of my favorite vintage or when I think about it in my imagination, I might express my desire by saying, oh, how I love that wine. So I'm expressing there the desire. Both these things, the enjoyment and the desire, are possible because I love wine. And here we are talking on the level of the principle or the source of these other actions. A person does not desire wine or Brussels sprouts or calf liver when it is absent or enjoy eating and drinking it when present unless he or she has an affinity, a certain connaturality or inclination for that wine or those Brussels sprouts already present in his or her affection. Aquinas holds that this affinity or connaturality or inclination is the primary meaning of love, both in the passions and in the will, because it is what leads to both desire and enjoyment. Aquinas' preferred term for love as principle is complacencia. He never tells us explicitly why, but we have some hint if we uh, look at what the Greek is. The contemporary English word, for, uh, word complacency does not capture the meaning of the Latin term. For Aquinas, complacencia is the Latin equivalent of the Greek eodokeia, which literally means satisfaction or approval and regularly conveys the notion of being well-pleasing. And so, God the Father, at the baptism of Jesus, uses the verbal form of eodokeia to say, this is my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. And the Latin translation is either complacui or complacuit mihi, depending on the, which gospel we're in and whether it's the baptism or the transfiguration. So it looks like since God himself uh, links delexio with complacencia, Aquinas' preferred word for that principle of love is complacencia, this pleasant, affective affinity that underlies all of our actions. Uh, and so uh, this Greek notion uh, conveying a well-pleasing, uh, well uh, affective affinity for some object judged to be good whether an action or a person or a thing, is the preferred term. Aquinas thus defines love in the following way, quote, 
The first change caused in our affectivity by the desirable object is called love and is nothing else than complacencia for the desired object. This definition is a summation of a fuller account that explicitly distinguishes between the emotional love proper to the passions and the spiritual or rational love proper to the will. In both cases, love is the principle of all subsequent motion, whether of the emotions or of the actions that flow from our rational decisions, and is nothing else than a certain pleasing, effective affinity for the good, complacencia boni. There is, however, a crucial difference between love in the passions and love in the will. How our emotions respond to the objects of our sense perception is not entirely under our control. Some things we will love or hate naturally. All animals love and desire fresh water, for example. Other objects will provoke emotional reactions in us because of our unique characteristics, our genetics, we would say today, or family upbringing or life experiences. We can try gradually to retrain our emotions, uh, but we cannot dictate to them. This is why Aristotle will affirm that we have a political, but not a despotic control over our emotions, including the emotion of love. We cannot turn emotional love on and off the way we can lift our hand up and down. Love and the will, however, is different. Aquinas affirms that love's complacencia for the loved object is the result of our free choice. This is why, although amor is the general Latin term for love, dilexio is the proper Latin word for love in the will, because spiritual love presupposes a choice, an elexio, as the name itself implies. We, cho we choose those whom we love. We choose those in whom we wish to be well-pleased, those whom we wish to place in our spiritual affection. St. Thomas, by introducing this distinction, helps us understand an aspect of love that poets have found so confounding. For example, I may feel for a lot of complicated emotional and psychological reasons a profound emotional uh, aversion. Uh, let's see, where am I? A profound emotional aversion uh, to my mother-in-law. <laughs> that was my mother teasing me from beyond, having me lose the page. So I may, for a lot of complicated emotional reasons, have an emotional aversion to my mother-in-law. Nevertheless, for love of God and for love of my spouse, I can freely choose place my mother-in-law in my spiritual affection. I can choose to place a spiritual complacencia in my will, in spite of what I may be feeling emotionally. In other words, I can choose to place love for her in my will, which love, and not my emotional reactions, will become the principle of all my actions with regard to her. 
The same is true in courtship as well as married life. Uh, every day, the lovers or the seasoned spouses may feel a thousand different emotions, emotional loves and hates, but in spite of this, they can choose day in and day out to remain faithful to their loves and keep their beloved at the heart of their spiritual affections. This leads us to St. Thomas's next great insight into the nature of love, his articulation of the, love, of the will's act of love. So we have the uh, love as principle, but what is the act that flows from that principle? The dynamics of emotional love are easier to sketch. When the loved object is absent, we desire it. Uh, therefore, there is desire. When it is present, there is pleasure. We enjoy the presence of the beloved, whether it's drinking the glass of wine or hearing a concert, whatever the love, loved good is. So in the emotion of love, principle, desire, pleasure. That's easier to see. But what about in the will? What is the will's act that flows from this compacentia? Thomas draws on Aristotle's definition of friendship love, philain, to affirm that to love is to will good to someone. Now, parenthesis here, the, this is a part of the drama of uh, the emergence of Greek thought in the West. Books eight and nine of the ethics were not available in the uh, 12th century, so reflections on charity were taking place without those reflections on friendship with God, which occur in books eight and nine of the ethics. They had Cicero, and uh, Peter Abelard will put that to good use in his own definition of charity. But it's only mid-13th century that they have a translation of the rhetoric and it's only until, it's only in 1270 that they have Morbeke's brilliant translation of the rhetoric. And why is that important? Because it's in the rhetoric, not the ethics, that Aristotle will give a definition of the act of philane. So the act of loving that is proper to uh, friendship love. So for example, in the resurrection account in, at the end of John's gospel, uh, the Lord says to Peter, do you love me? And he says, uh, uh, he uses agape, agapes, do you love me? And Peter thinks he's ready to be a shepherd and, and be a friend, and he says, you know that I love you, philo. He's using philain. So what does that verb mean? And so Aristotle gives his definition, and I've given it to you in the handout. Uh, so I've got the Greek there, and I've got more Becky's translation. But the the synthesis of it, Aquinas gives, to love is to will good to someone. That's the act of the will, the spiritual act of the will. Thomas explains that this means, quote, love has a twofold tendency towards the good that a person wishes to someone, to himself or to another, and towards the one uh, to whom he wishes some good. Love is essentially love for someone. The object of spiritual love is always a person. To explain this dynamic, Aquinas distinguishes between 
amor concupiscentiae and amor amicitiae, which we can translate respectively as the love proper to desire and the love proper to friendship. The love proper to friendship, amor amicitiae, is the act of willing good to the beloved. This willing, however, must also be order, uh, oriented toward the good we will for our friend, and thus entails as an integral component an amor concupiscentiae for the good we will for him. This, in Aquinas's view, is the essence of friendship love. When we love a person, we are always affirming some good for that person. There are not two separate loves. Rather, human love always has this twin component, one of which is subordinate to the other. Love of desire is contained within the dynamism of our friendship love for ourselves or for someone else. Uh, if I uh, see a person uh, going towards uh, the kitchen, uh, they're going to get something, uh, a cup of coffee. So uh, I desire coffee for myself. I am willing a good for myself. So there's the twofold motion towards affirming my own existence by being able to stay awake and enjoy the coffee, but I do it by desiring the coffee. So love of desire is contained within the dynamism of our friendship love for ourselves or someone else. Most fundamentally, the good we will for the beloved is simply the good of existence. Uh, Aquinas affirms the first thing that one wills for a friend is that he be and live. Only subsequently, do we then will particular goods for our beloved and direct our actions accordingly? As Joseph Pieper explains, to love another is to affirm, it's good that you exist, it's good that you are in this world. And Pieper, in that beautiful work uh, uh, about love or on love, looks at all the ways in which our life and all we say and all we do uh, is supposed to be an affirmation of uh, the goodness, uh, uh, the existence of the other. We then also will, okay, uh, health, and, and that the person, the other goods that we will for our beloved, that he or she be virtuous, healthy, and wise, close to God. When our beloved is present and enjoying all these things, we rejoice in the beloved and his or her good. From the perspective of love's fire, we can say that St. Thomas more successfully integrates the two flames. Thomas recognized that in the will, the red flame of desire burns from within the interior cone of the blue flame of freely chosen benevolence. Thomas recognized that all our desires exist from within a friendship love that affirms the existence of our beloved, whether ourselves or another. When God's grace elevates the will's love in the gift of the theological virtue of charity, the twofold dynamic of love remains, but acquires a celebratory character. We will God's good, not as something he lacks, but as something he infinitely and perfectly is. We love him joyfully celebrating his existence and his creative actions. When the Lord loves, he says, let there be. His love is creative. And we see the beauty and wonder of his creation 
and our love's response is amen. This is a veritable symphony of love between God and his holy ones. Let there be amen. Aquinas further explains that the will's act, as animated by charity, has an added feature in charity. When we love God from charity, we do so from a union of affections. We are united to God and his love when we love him. His effective, this effective union is the result of what grace makes possible in us. Aristotle had famously affirmed that all friendship is based on some communion of life, koinonia, whether this is based on a, a shared love for something superficial, a superficial good like stamp collecting or collecting matchboxes or whatever it might be, or upon uh, a, a common love for a profound good like the virtues. Aquinas draws on this to explain that the virtue of charity is the friendship with God that flows from the communion of life that sanctifying grace makes possible within us. So what Aristotle had denied explicitly, saying that the distance between God and us is too great for friendship to exist, because of what God shares with us, communicates to us, friendship is possible upon that communication, that communicatio, that koinonia. And so the Lord will say, I no longer call you servants but friends, for I have made known to you all I have heard from my Father. From charity, therefore, we love God as someone who is present to us and with whom we live. In Christ, we become by adoption what Christ is by nature, adopted sons and daughters of God. For Aquinas, friendship with God is a filial friendship. This effective union with God helps explain a further feature of charity. In the gift of charity, we participate in the life-giving creativity of God. While generally our love is a response to a good we perceive, God's love creates the good in the creature whom he loves, creating it first in existence and then creating it to flourish. That initial image of himself that we have in our natures and then the perfection of the image through grace and then glory. When we love others from the virtue of charity, we participate in God's creative love. We help the other grow and become the person he or she is called be, we say to our beloved, it's good that you exist. It's good that you thrive, flourish, become the person you are called to be. But where in all of this is the glorious desire for God so beautifully articulated by St. Augustine? Although we may criticize an excessive emphasis on the desire for God, we do not wish to remove desire altogether. Indeed, even a cursory reading of the scriptures reveals that the desire for God is present and celebrated throughout. The psalmist, for example, exclaims, like a deer that longs for flowing streams, so my soul longs for you, my God. Psalm 42, or what Thomas knew as Psalm 41. An adequate theology of charity, therefore, must take into account this desire for God. St. Thomas fully recognizes the centrality of desire in the Christian life. Indeed, 
His commentary on the psalm I just quoted, Psalm 42, uh, in it he affirms, uh, he fully approves of the psalmist's desire for God, seeing it as expressing the desire of the perfect who are ready for eternal glory, or of catechumens who are ready for baptism. Explaining, and that, he explains, is why the psalm is used both in the ancient liturgy of baptism and at funerals. What St. Thomas recognizes, however, is that those who desire God desire him as an absent good. This love is entirely legitimate, but it is the love proper to hope. Their hope is, no doubt, animated and commanded by charity. But the act of desire itself is properly the act of hope. Thomas explains this by appealing to the twofold character of the will's act of love. There's a longer quotation. Hope presupposes love of him whom one hopes to attain, which love is a love of desire, amor concupiscentiae, by which one more loves oneself, desiring a good, than willing a good to another. Charity, however, entails a love of friendship, amor amicitiae, toward which hope flows. In other words, while charity wills and celebrates God's goodness, hope desires this goodness as our perfection and our happiness. Both loves are legitimate, but hope is temporal and imperfect, like a child's desire for its mother's milk. The child's desire is natural, good, and legitimate. Indeed, the child's life depends on such desire. But it, is, but it is only for a time. So too hope is a supernatural good and legitimate. And our spiritual life depends on this desire. But it is only for a time and is thus essentially an imperfect love. Thomas says, perfect love is that by which someone is loved for himself, as when one wills him good, the way a man loves his friend. Imperfect love is that by which one loves something not for itself, but because of the good that comes to the lover from it, as when a man loves something he desires. The first love of God pertains to charity, by which we cling to God for himself. Notice the vocabulary is Augustinian. We cling to God but for himself, while hope pertains to the second love, because one who hopes intends to obtain something for himself. This self-directed desire is legitimate because this is what God himself wants for us. He wants us to desire him. In heaven, however, it will disappear. These things remain faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. The desire for God will be entirely replaced in heaven by charity's celebration of the God with whom we are fully and perfectly united. St. Thomas's theology of charity suggests that Augustine's theology of love is primarily, in fact, a theology of hope. 
When Augustine in On Christian Doctrine defines charity as a motion toward enjoying God instead of as simply the enjoyment of God, he underlines an aspect of charity that exists only in this life. He is defining charity in terms of the imperfect and temporal act of loving God as an absent good. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. They're not yet resting in thee. It's a theology of God as absent. This love is animated by charity, but it is the charity of the wayfarer who lives charity in hope, focusing on God's absence and on that aspect of our relationship with God that is still imperfect and unfulfilled. St. Thomas, on the other hand, focuses on those aspects of charity that are the beginning of eternal life in us already, right now. He focuses on our shared life with God that begins even now, although by faith and not by sight. Instead of desire, Aquinas underlies the joy of loving and celebrating the good of, a pres of the present triune friend who dwells in our hearts as we pass through this life. So not so much desire, but joy, joy even in suffering. The two great saints, therefore, are meditating on the same double flame. But Augustine focuses on the red flame of desire during our exile on earth, while, Augustine focuses, while Aquinas focuses on the blue flame that celebrates God's presence in sanctifying grace, which is a foretaste of heaven. And in heaven, what happens to the fire of charity when all desires are fulfilled in the joy of the beatific vision? Does the fire of our love become a single flame or does the double flame remain, but without the presence of imperfection and desire? From his place in heaven, St. Thomas could no doubt tell us. I suspect, however, that he would prefer to have us end by giving the last word to another poet of the flame, who calls attention to the flame's role as a refining fire. O living flame of love that tenderly wounds my soul in its deepest center. In killing, you changed death to life. O lamps of fire in whose splendors the deep caverns of feeling once obscured and blind now give forth so rarely, so exquisitely, both warmth and life and light to their beloved. Thank you. <laughs>